Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. The Bible. Some say it's irrelevant. Others say it's out of date. Some say it's relevant for some, but not for me. Others say the Bible is inspiring, but it's also frustrating at the same time. So the question for today is, what would you say the Bible is to you? Voltaire, the famous famous French uh, 18th century philosopher, predicted the Bible would become a museum piece within 100 years of his lifetime and be replaced by more advanced philosophies. And yet today the Bible continues to be the most popular book in the world. It is the most successful literary creation of all time. Each year, 100 million Bibles are either sold or given away. The YouVersion Bible app today, to date, has over 400 million unique devices that have downloaded it in every country of the world. The Bible is the best seller every single year for probably several centuries in a row at least. In fact, it's led most bestseller lists to eliminate it from the list because it's always number one. So they just got rid of it on the list. The Bible is also thought to be the most powerful book. On Queen Elizabeth's uh, coronation day, she was presented with the Bible inscribed with these words. We present you this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. I want you to take just a moment to listen to a video of two followers of Jesus talking about the Bible. The writer of the Psalms describes the Bible as being more precious than gold. In fact, it's so precious that some have even risked their lives to share it with others. It was in um, March 2009, one day early in the morning, Marzia received a phone call from a stranger. He had some question about the car document and asked her to go to the police station. And we didn't know why and what, what was going to happen. Um, but we just prayed together and she left, she went to the police station. And I was waiting for Marzia to return from the security police. Suddenly I heard the sound of her with a few others behind the door. Well, I saw her standing there with um, three guards. And I was so shocked when they ransacked everywhere and they took both of us with all our belongings, like Bibles, Jesus movies, into the security police. We had long hours of interrogation. I, I believe it was in the first day that he threatened us to physical torture. In that dark cell in the basement, we just hugged each other. We said goodbye because we thought it was our last day on earth. And... Um, We were so scared. I remember the only thing that we could do um, in that dark cell in those moments was just praying for each other. Uh, We met each other for the first time. It was 2005. And after finishing our theology courses, uh, we both felt that we had the same passion about our country to return to our country and to share this message with our people. That's why even though we knew that how much is dangerous, we decided to go. And we uh, called our pastor, he was in uh, London, and we asked him to send uh, thousands of uh, Bibles. And uh, it wasn't easy for them. And we received uh, those New Testaments and we started our first mission. And usually at night we carried about 140 New Testaments in our uh, backpack and put them in the uh, mailboxes. I remember sometimes it was uh, during the winter we had to walk 
for long hours, for about eight, nine hours. And after almost three years, uh, we could distribute uh, 20,000 uh, new testaments. There are some stories, amazing stories, that how God protected us and we could see his miracles. We were distributing Bibles, we were talking to people, and we were having these two house churches in our own apartment. And we knew that it was risky. We spent almost nine months in prison and 14 days we were separated. We were um, staying in solitary confinement. And I can say uh, during those nine months, we had almost about 10 trials, 10 courts. And in each court, the judges our, and our interrogators would threaten us to execution by hanging. And they, they wanted to put pressure on us to deny our faith in Jesus. We didn't have Bible with us. But uh, we learned how to live with the verses uh, of Bible. And every day we were praying and uh, asking God to give us uh, this power to live uh, those verses and to show him through, those, uh, uh, through our behaviors to prisoners. It was um, almost uh, at the nine months that uh, uh, we heard that uh, we, have, we had many supports from different uh, parts of the world. And because of all these uh, supports, the, the government had to release us, unlike their desires. And you know, Marcy mentioned about those Bibles that we were distributing. At that time, we were just praying for those Bibles. We, did, we didn't know who would get those Bibles. And I remember uh, it was two years ago, we were in Australia, and we were invited to a church. After our speech, um, a couple came up uh, on the stage, and they were uh, both of them. They were crying, and they started to share their stories. They said that um, the wife found one of those Bibles that we put in, the, in their mailboxes, and they found the Bible. And the whole family came to Christ just by reading that um, New Testament that we put in their mailboxes. That clip is from the Alpha Film Series. We're actually running the Alpha Series right now using a different set of videos. But uh, if you're interested in joining that in the future, we're going to be running more courses in the future. To live, to live a life so focused, to risk their lives to bring love of God to people, so invested in the value of the Bible's ability to bring life to anyone who reads it. I think their lives challenge me. I don't, they, they challenge you. I think they make us revisit the question, how do I, how do you look at the Bible? What value do each of us place on the Bible? There's been a devaluing of Scripture in our culture, even in the last few decades in the church in America. We can fall into a tendency of reading other books about the Bible more than we actually read the Bible. Because we're in this series deeply formed now, we're focusing on following the ways of Jesus and doing spiritual practices that Jesus did so that we will not be shallow Christians, easily swayed when situations around us go crazy, but rather we will be firmly established in our faith. The Bible is absolutely critical as a foundational aspect to our faith, to which our spiritual practices are deeply tied. So the Bible, it's a collection of, of, of works, books written over 1,600 years by, by more than 40 different authors, written by poor people, kings, poets, historians, doctors, fishermen. They, they wrote the Bible in all types of literary for, styles, from history to poetry to, to letters to prophecy to apocalyptic literature and a couple other kinds of styles. Now, now, I realize that some focus on things that seem like flaws in the Bible, and they dispute it's, that it's inspired by God. We've, we've addressed those issues in the past in previous messages showing how the vast majority of assertions about flaws are based on ignorance and misunderstanding. 
Some of them are even based on anti-scientific thinking and not the reality of the text seen in both its context and its historical context. There's so much proof to show the incredible, substantiated accuracy of the Bible that convincingly demonstrates the Bible is the most trustworthy source out there. This is a book that has a library of books within it that all disciples of Jesus have held throughout church history to be inspired by God himself and thereby seeing it as authoritative over each disciple's life. I mean, this book, it has earned the right to be carefully read and accurately understood. There's a pastor and author, Rick Warren, who talks about it this way. He says, the reading the Bible generates life. It produces change. It heals hurts. It builds character. It transforms circumstances. It imparts joy. It overcomes adversity. It defeats temptation. It infuses hope. It releases power. It cleanses the mind. How? Because the whole point of this book is that God wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants to speak to you. God uses these words in his Bible to speak to us. So how does God speak to us in the Bible? That's what we're going to explore today. Think, think about it this way to start off with. What are a few movies that you are willing to watch over and over and over again? For some of you, your kids, this is not that long ago. You, you, don't, you can never forget Frozen and all the singing of Elsa going on in your household like all the time, so much that you grew tired of it, right? My son, Derek, and his wife, Kara, who, who she had not seen the movies, watched every single Marvel movie in order before they could see the final one. All 23 of them. She's a saint. Listening to all of the nuances of each character. For my daughter, it's the Lord of the Rings. When she learns someone has not seen it, she's impassioned to rectify that misstep. For her, next to the Bible, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is the most important book, the most important story people need to be familiar with. And not just the original version. If you sit down with her, you're going to see the extended edition. Because every time you see it again, you see something you missed. The meaning becomes even more powerful and more beautiful. Good art, see, rarely gives up all of its secret easily on the first viewing or reading. Which is why there are books and documentaries that dissect our favorite movies. It's why people travel the world and stand in line still today to see Van Gogh's Starry Night or Michelangelo's Artistry in the Sistine Chapel. Some of the, this great art leaves us with mystery. It leaves us with questions, which can actually help keep us exploring it more and more over time. It can also frustrate us, Right? Haven't you experienced this? If you watched a great movie enough times, looked at it more closely, you see something there you had not seen before. And then all of a sudden, pieces of this movie make so much more sense. Even more than a really good book, a really good painting, or a really good movie, the Bible doesn't show every meaning, every mystery the first time you experience it. That's why it's so important for us to encourage in ourselves and in others to cultivate a deep love for the Bible. I mean, let's just look at the first psalm for a second. Let's read it. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Whose delight is in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. I mean, the law of the Lord, for some, can refer to the first five books of the Bible, of the Torah. But it can also mean God's teaching and instruction and therefore apply as it does to the whole Bible. And the psalmist makes this staggering statement in telling us that the thing that distinguishes the wicked from the righteous is meditation on God's word. The unrighteous have no room for God's instruction leading to destruction. The righteous take the time to chew, to meditate, to take the time to not just fill their mind with the words, but to connect emotionally and connect our whole being, our attitudes, our passions to this deep truth woven within this powerful, beautiful, complex story written by the one who has had the creative energy to design the entire world. That's what we connect with in the story of the Bible. And when we do, it changes us. It changes us so much that we'll be like the text says, a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Isn't that an attractive picture for what your life could be? Yet some of us, I think, struggle with even open the Bible. It can feel heavy. It can be confusing. We feel guilt instead of delight. If that's the case, maybe, maybe we're not engaging the Bible in a way that makes sense for us. But another reason is I think sometimes we struggle with the Bible because most of us don't like to be told what to do. I think it's as simple as that. We don't like to be told what's right and wrong and how we should think. I think many of us use the Bible like a textbook or a manual. Where we go to the index, we find a verse that addresses the answer to the problem we're facing. I mean, why bother reading the whole thing when you could just go to the index and get a shortcut to the answers that you need for right now for a decision? But the Bible is not as linear as that. We can't just copy and paste answers to our lives. The Bible is a mixture of literature that is designed for us to meditate on, allowing it to form us deeply, slowly over time. That's one of the reasons why I'm grateful that we did in 2020 going cover to cover in the Bible and reading it together. But, but as I shared last week, even for me, I'm, I'm retacking, kind of emphasizing a little bit more in my rule of life, more reading of Scripture, more slowly, more meditatively, so that it can deeply form me more. So I read recently uh, uh, some stuff by uh, Josh Porter, a pastor from Canada, as a great example on how immersing ourselves in Scripture can bring such deep meaning, which uh, the Bible sets us up for. And allow me to summarize that uh, partially as well, because he was dealing with a, a Genesis 4 story that I'd already been thinking about a little bit as an illustration. Like, like Porter, I was also uh, not that long ago saying, well, maybe I want to go back and read some of the classics like maybe East of Eden by Steinbeck, which describes a family with similarities that correspond to the biblical story of Cain and Abel, which is what Genesis 4 is about. So as we read this, I want you to listen for what the story leaves out. 
So, it says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? I mean, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. How now you are under a curse, driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and and, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and then lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Fascinating story, but there's a lot missing in it, isn't it? We go from Cain being jealous and upset, which is understandable. I mean, we could even relate to that, right? He's warned by God about sin with a powerful metaphor. Sin is crouching at the door, waiting to pounce. And then Cain just up and kills his brother. How did Cain get there? How does he go from jealousy to murder so quickly? That part of the story is not fully answered, forcing us to read more into the text and its implications. It leaves us asking questions like, well, where are some other parallels and other parts of the Bible's story to this? Where did you previously see sin was crouching at one's door? How has sin desired desired to have you, but you did not rule over it? Well, how about Genesis 2, just a couple chapters earlier? Here someone is presented with the choice, saying you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, any tree, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Meaning there are many good things and an evil thing. What will you choose? Each character has the moral capacity to distinguish between good and evil and has to choose one. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule. You must choose over it. Previously, God had created all mankind and blessed them and said to them to be fruitful and fill the earth, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
Similar to Cain, Adam and Eve failed in their call to rule, and they let sin rule over them instead. In Abel's story, we have this powerful image as well of God saying, Abel's blood cries out from the ground. This image is kind of a recurring, a recurring motif throughout the Bible, one of which, one of the meanings of it is that, that how, how will the shed blood be avenged? When will justice happen that is crying out to take place? And God's saying, your blood's, your brother's blood cries out to me. At this point, we don't have a picture of how that will be avenged or how it will be set right yet in the Bible. Right now, we just see Cain's motivation of jealousy, but have to fill in the gaps, forcing us, I think, if we meditate on this and think about it, to, to see that and ask the question, have, have I ever been jealous and, and, and let it grow inside of me? And when I have, what's the cost of that jealousy in my own life? Am I allowing hate or murder to fester in my heart towards someone? And what's the cost of that? See, we can start to see how we too can be like Cain and Abel. If we stay on the surface level of reading the story of Cain and Abel, we'll miss out. The Bible is written for us to come back to again and again and again, reading the story slowly and thoughtfully, and there's so much more packed into that story that we could talk about. In so doing, as we meditate on Scripture, God might touch on jealousy or unforgiveness or fear over your past sins and want to free you and heal you from that. If we jump ahead in the Bible to where Moses gives his final speech to Israel, retelling the law to a new generation, he says, Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Um, in order to, uh, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So here's Israel's been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they have to make a choice, choose to follow God or idols or their own pleasures, God gave them bread from the sky to show them that they can trust God more than anything else at all in the world. And then if we jump ahead to Matthew 4, which is a major focus of Lenten season where we remember Jesus 40 days in the desert, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Just what we read a minute ago in Deuteronomy. So we see this sin crouching at the door of Jesus' life moment. And Jesus rules over sin by quoting Scripture. He succeeds where Adam and Eve and Cain and Israel had failed. 
Jesus had meditated, so fully memorized and, and made a part of him the Bible's wisdom that he is able to call on its truth and live out its wisdom. Jesus doesn't just quote the Bible to say, boom, right answer, I beat you, Satan. No, Jesus had so fully meditated on scriptures so that he could rule over sin and live free from sin and live in the blessing and purpose God had created him for. And this is our invitation to meditate on the Bible in ways where we keep moving forward and backward through these texts, to connect stories, to ask questions, to work through troubling passages. The Bible is the most incredible work of art, uniquely crafted to be read and reread throughout our entire lifetime. We keep gaining in new dimensions of wisdom and truth and experience of God when we delight in and prayerfully meditate upon its words, its story. So some of you might find it hard to delight and really get into the Bible. There's, there's many reasons this can happen. You know, maybe one of them is that because you haven't seen the Bible like a complex work of art that takes time to understand it, you get frustrated thinking you should understand it the first time. Another is to help that, is it helps to have someone else who loves it help you understand it more. It can help to study the Bible in a variety of ways. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to do that. We, you can study it academically to understand a certain, you know, story or a particular passage. There's lots of ways. We'll have a handout that's going to be posted again with the message this week when it's edited and put up sometime later today or tomorrow that you can download. It's going to be got resources to use in studying the Bible in a variety of ways. Like you can memorize it. You can read it through as many did last year from cover to cover or another reading plan. But actually one of the most helpful ways to meditate on the Bible is called Lectio Divina. It, it's a Latin term meaning divine reading. And I'd like to end our time together with talking about this practice. For centuries, followers of Jesus have used this simple practice of meeting with God in Scripture. And it has four very simple steps. Reading, meditation, prayer, contemplation. You can pick any passage you want. If, you, if you're new to this, I, set, I suggest doing the Psalms because they're kind of shortish, you know, on, the, on that range or a story of Jesus. But you first start out by reading. Once you've selected the passage, invite the Holy Spirit to guide you to, in your thinking, your feelings as you read. And then you read the passage slowly. Maybe even read it out loud. Read the text at the most basic level asking, what's going on in this passage? And read it three, four, five times slowly so you have time to soak in it. Then meditate. Meditation is about what is God saying to me through this text? Often as you read something, it might begin to connect with something in your life, your work, your relationships, thoughts, feelings, things going on, decisions you need to make. Spend a few minutes processing the connections you're sensing and feeling inside through which God might be speaking to you in those moments. And third, prayer. What do you want to say to God about the text. After you've meditated, what do you want to say to him? This is an opportunity to begin to offer words to God in response to what God might have spoken to you in that meditation time. Like, if you're grateful, tell him. If you're upset, tell him. If you're confused, tell him. Maybe there's something you need to ask forgiveness for. Do that. Maybe there's something you feel directed to do. Maybe you have a question. Ask him the question. 
Maybe the text of Scripture puts your thoughts and your hopes and your dreams and your feelings into a prayer and you can pray that Scripture. Fourth step is contemplation. At this point, no more words are needed. Just sit in silence, resting in the one who loves you and longs to see you be more deeply formed and achieve that blessing of being that strong tree, always fruitful, planted by the waters. To take two to three minutes to sit in silence at the end, enjoying the presence of God. See, remember, this is, this is an exchange. It's not just words on a page. It's a relationship. It's not just slam the book shut and carry on over the day and check that off. I got it done. Sit in God's presence after you've talked and reflected, trusting that your prayers are heard. See, the Bible is designed to be read for a lifetime. We can never exhaust it. There are always more layers and wisdom to explore, more richness to experience, more presence of God to encounter through the way we interact with it. Again, sometimes we get frustrated. But what if sometimes part of the purpose of the text is to frustrate us and thereby help us get at something we need to be changed by? Maybe our frustration is telling us to go slow. We need to experience more. We need to, we need to see more to understand Because as we go deeper in scriptures, we'll have to wrestle with thoughts and ideas and attitudes and values and beliefs. And it's it's in that process that we get to hear God and we get to meet with God. See, for thousands of years, those who delight in the Bible, who meditate on it, have understood that this book is too great for even one mind to contain So the Bible was never intended to be a book that was just understood in isolation. It's actually done best together in times like we are here today, in times like with your small groups and talking with a friend over coffee about it. We need each other to more deeply grasp the Bible and to live it out and experience the goodness of it. For some, actually I think probably for all of us, sin is consistently crouching at our door. And we have a choice. You can put yourself in a place where you can be shaped by the powerful tree that refuses to be uprooted from Jesus, staying attached to his word, or you'll let sin rule over you. For some, the Bible was used as a rule book and a legalistic do's and don'ts, and it's challenging for you to have a different relationship with it today. Some of us have read this book to win arguments. Often others have just skimmed it on the surface rather than doing the hard work of slowing down and wrestling with understanding it and meditating with it. Wherever you may be, the main purpose of this message today is to remind us that the Bible is power. It is the power to show you over and over again how God wants to have a relationship with you. And it is something through which you encounter God himself in interacting with. He wants to speak to you. He wants to meet with you. The Bible isn't just an interesting book, a bestseller. This Bible is a story that is timeless that gives us truth through which God's Spirit lives and encounters you and I through regularly. 
Worship team, come on back up. Many have given their very lives that others may have a chance to read this book. Let's not waste our opportunity or disdain our ease of access to the Bible and miss out on delighting and meditating in these words of God so that we can also be that tree planted by streams of water. Our lives can be characterized by strength, by life, by abundance, by regular fruitfulness, by endurance, by beauty. Would you join me as we pray? God, I confess, and I think I can confess on behalf of all of us that we, we do too easily um, take for granted your word. We do too easily fall into the self-help guru mindset of just looking at it for a quick answer rather than a relationship. And Lord, so many times we feel guilty because we know that we're not doing what we need to do here. We know that we're not meditating on it. We know we're not having this practice in order and we feel guilty. Lord, I pray that you would come right now and wash that guilt away. Send it away to the dark places where you want it to go and never come back. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come now to each and every one of us. And that we would know your loving invitation. Your passionate, loving invitation to know you, to know your voice, to know your word, to know who you are, to know your presence with us, to know who we are in your eyes as your, as your sons and daughters. And I pray that for each of us, as we take even just simple steps today and this week into your word, that we would encounter you and we would fall more deeply in love with you every single day. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org slash give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.